Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guest is a member of Smart Recovery Australia, and he'll be sharing his recovery story and explain about how Smart Recovery approach works and how it's helped him. So I'd like to introduce Daniel Raffel, who's a National Program Manager and Trainer at Smart Recovery Australia. So welcome to the show, Dan. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Thanks for having us. No worries. So we usually talk about growing up and the the things that influenced us and, and how you sort of progressed in your particular area, you know, where you later had problems. And sort of looking back, the, the things you thought were sort of critical milestones or times in your life that you feel people would be able to relate to how you ended up where you, where you did. So what was your family life like growing up? Yeah, look, uh, compared to a lot of people that I work with um, over the years in this line of work, mine was, was fairly standard. There wasn't any significant events or trauma that kind of triggered specific things and it was only on reflection I noticed similar patterns as such which I can share about later on but I grew up in Scotland as you can hear my accent's definitely not from these parts of the world uh, and I do my best to speak slowly (laughs) and not use Scottish words that you'll understand because I'm sure there's Australian words that I wouldn't know what they are either. But I grew up well just north of Edinburgh actually quite near St Andrews uh, in a fairly small town a couple of thousand people and both my parents all married which I'm fortunate to have that upbringing and two older brothers which will share a little bit about the influences that that had on my life. Growing up in in the sleepy town called Ladybank was a was a good thing you know reflecting on my childhood. I often reminisce on a a, a fun that I used to have on 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 my bike uh, cycling for, for most of the day my parents don't know where I was going but it was felt like it was normal back then you just disappear for the day and as, as long as you come back before the street lights come on you're okay but uh, I'd be often playing with my friends whether it be soccer or football we call it over there uh, and uh, or going up, up the woods up the forest to make gang huts or or weapons and just things that kids do your normal kind of upbringings enjoying the summers and uh, enjoying the sledges and then snowball fights in the winters and just your typical kind of uh uh, Scottish upbringing really so um, I was very fortunate to have a, a stable home um, for many years in my upbringing. So a lot of Scottish people I know came out of a fairly heavy drinking culture so what was it like where you lived? It wasn't something that I visibly noticed in my own family you know my parents would be going to the bowling club or something and just having a few drinks and stuff but other than maybe once I remember my mum getting really drunk and uh, falling in between the, and the, the, the bed and the wall one week, there was nothing significant going on in my family home as such. And I didn't really notice anything in the town, you know, in my really early days. For me, when I started to kind of notice things a little bit, and as I'm sure many of your, your listeners do, around about 12, 13 years old, there was kind of two influences back then that started to expose me to a certain or uh, a different life than I was uh, used to having as a, as a, as a child. Um, one being my peers and just what was going on in the town at that time. And I was um, ready to go into secondary school that time. So you, then you're exposed to a, another different culture. So there was a little bit about, you know, your weekends, Friday night bottle of cider, you know, after school or whatever, and going out trying to, you know, chase some girls or trying to get a girlfriend, whatever, <laughs> just your normal running around town thinking that you're cool and thinking that you're hard. And so there was that kind of normal culture that was creeping in. And then on the other side, I had two older brothers, as I mentioned earlier. Now, 
there's probably about a seven year gap between us. So they were kind of more advanced in that culture and that and 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 I was kind of being led into you know not 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 forcibly but you know there was a choice there to continue walking down that path that was a bit clearer you know there was my peers and my brothers now around about 12 13 years old we would just be getting the bottle of cider on a Friday night trying to convince the older boys outside the shop to go and purchase it or anyone that's willing to go in and purchase it for the kids you know looking back on it quite strange and very frowned upon nowadays that uh, adults would be buying alcohol for younger teenagers at that stage but yeah, we would just be smoking cigarettes and drinking, you know, drinking on Friday, Saturday night. That point seemed like a bit of a rite of passage, really, like a lot of people do experience some of that. But as I said, with my older brothers, there was another influence. I was starting to be exposed just gently to other language and other things that I was just curious, like, what's that? What's this? You know, different kind of terms for different things, maybe certain drugs and things as well. So... I think it was around about 13 years old where cannabis kind of came onto the scene a little bit and my brothers had smelt it when my parents were away for the weekend and I was just curious what that was and uh, we were, you know, hitting first year or what would be considered probably year seven or eight, I think, 12, 13 years old. And um, I remember just trying it for the first time, just a bit of weed. Brothers bought it for me. He, I couldn't even roll up the joints, really. They, he rolled up you know the joints and put them in a little pencil case and I'd be away to my friend's party and I'm sure he probably took quite a bit of it for himself I wouldn't know the difference of what was good or what was not I way off to this party and you know some drink and smoking some joints down the basement of my friend's house and but around about 12 or 13 14 I was quite involved in music back then in the early 90s the culture over in Scotland uh, was quite a rave culture in some of the teenagers so going out to raves and parties and different things and music and, and, and DJing. So I took a bit of like, liking to music. And a few of my friends, the, 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 the friends circles that I had at that time, we were quite into music. So we were going out to um, under 18 nightclubs and stuff at like 12, 13 years old. Now, the first time it started, it was just, you couldn't have alcohol there. We were just going there simply buzzing on, on teenage life and uh, we have a few beers before we go in but there was no alcohol or anything in them so when that started to kind of become more popular for me um, my friends and I were quite interested in, in DJing you know back then we did have vinyl but I bought a set of decks and we started buying music and because of the nature of that music a lot of the culture comes through it's about stimulants and different substances psychoactive substances to kind of make the experience a bit more enjoyable or a little bit more unusual so when that kind of crept in it was quite common to be school all week and then I would be, be planning a Friday night going out to the nightclub or or a rave or somewhere that we knew of so then again different things like acid and, and amphetamine speed ecstasy started kind of creeping in it was becoming readily available and we were exposed to that more and more and that was exciting it was fun even though I did okay at school I was pretty decent level at school but uh, that become more appealing than the the mundane of school lives so it was just kind of living for that weekend really yeah it'd be quite a common thing I mean at the age of 13 14 years old I was I was hiring buses from bus companies to put on a bus for all my mates at school and I'd be charging them money to get on the bus to take us to an all-night rave over in Edinburgh an under 18s rave and my parents had no idea what I was doing I was just slamming out for the night and here's me the on, ever the entrepreneur charging all these people for bus tickets to go to this all-night rave and, and just obviously getting involved in lots of different uh, substances and you know you learn through that process as well and I guess anything I talk about I'm not talking about it to glorify anything I'm just talking about it from experience Bill and uh, I don't want to come across like I'm glorifying it so I'm just explaining what it was like at that time. Did it cause you any problems in your life at that point or was it just recreational? Not to my knowledge at all it was fun it was it was exciting um, I was experiencing physical and psychological things that I've never experienced and, and now knowing the the kind of uh, 
chemical kind of reaction in the body and now I've done more studies that you know it was that kind of real buzz and because I was in a sleepy town and I'd, we'd done everything we could at that stage there was nothing else for us that was that appealing um there was not much going on or at least I didn't see any options for us to to go out and have that same excitement so it would be quite often I'd be you would be buying lots and lots of drugs and you know they might sell stuff here and there and I remember even I'd be selling paracetamol to people just because I wanted money for my own benefit and you know I guess there was a lot of aspects of my life back there that in my thinking was really starting to not be healthy um, in that sense. So Dan what was it like to be influenced so much by your older brothers? Yeah, so because of my older brothers walking the paths before me, it was really interesting looking back on it, Bill, many, many years later, looking back on what were the influences. As I said, my parents were still together. My dad, extremely strong work ethic, you know, he provided whatever we really needed at that stage, not have a lot of money. He was a working uh, blue-collar welder fabricator. Um, he was working lots of night shifts. We'd have little family holidays in the caravan, different things like that. But uh, a lot of the time he was sleeping or he was working and we'd might see him at the weekends. But he had a lot of hobbies and different things as well. So, you know, we'd cross paths sometimes. But I think at the age of 13, 14 years old, you're looking for a role model in your life. You're looking to find some sense of your manhood or who you are as an, an, an identity to, to, to where you're going to be and who you're going to be as a man. And because my dad was kind of not as present, or at least I maybe backed away from him because, you know, there was an authoritative there. Or, you know, if I wake him up, I'm going to be in trouble or whatever. You know, like that would be my mum's threat. If the boys are fighting, you know, you wake your dad up, you're going to get spanked, you know, <laughs> somewhere like that. Never really happened that much, but it was the threat. So, I was again looking for that person in my life. Now, I had two older brothers, so it was quite seamless to then look to one of them. And one of them were living this life in a much more exciting fear of influence. And my middle brother, who's about six years older than us, he was often at cross paths and he'd be with these beautiful girls or these nice cars and this exciting stories and stuff. And it was just really appealing and I, I looked quite similar to him but a mini version so all these girls were coming up giving us wee cuddles and kisses and it was just like oh wow this is quite exciting and all this kind of stories I'm hearing about fights and you know having gang fights with these people and these people and they just that excitement continued to build there so I guess uh, subconsciously I was drawn to him more than my dad uh, as a role model now as I said wasn't a choice but therefore because I was starting that life a little bit myself um, it just kind of opened the door to other things as well so what really happened there that culture that work you know school um, eventually my parents had to move away now they gave me the choice I was 15 I just turned 16 and I just started working simply I left school because I wanted money to go to the raves that was literally the reason I left school. I can't fund myself to go to these things and spend all this money on drugs, earning my pocket money. So I'm leaving school at 16 and I'm working and I ended up getting an apprenticeship. And what happened when your parents moved away? My parents moved away and I said, there's no way I'm going down to a sleepy town in Somerset down the south of England with you guys, with all my friends and everything I've got going on. So I'll get a flat and I'll get a flat with my brothers and we, we got a house together before my dad the deposit and got it all set up thinking you know the older boys will look after Dan you know and uh, lo and behold it kind of just went even more pear-shaped really so my parents moved away Uh, we moved into this flat and that became the epicenter for us and and our unfolding life in in different ways so you know I was just 16 so I was on my own flat with 16 just turning 17. What was it like to have so much freedom as a 16 year old? By that time, there was more exposure to things. Heroin had been started to be talked about. I'd smoked it a couple of times. And when we got there, there was other ways of, I guess, administering those things. And there was a lot of people that was coming through that house, a lot of really big kind of guys, you know, big drug dealing guys, lots of really scary people. And I'm like, 
16, 17 year old and look, I'm not going to pretend to listeners that I was a tough guy at that stage on reflection. I'm a little boy, you know, really. But I'd have this persona. I'd be trying to act hard and fit in with what was going on because you show weakness, you're in trouble, you know. So we'd have people coming to that house, all sorts of, of, of real threats. Um, there'd be people in and out just doing drug deals, my brothers, myself, people coming in and out with machetes, with hammers, with all sorts of weapons and stuff. And it was just party zone as well, you know. And it was quite often we'd have the drug squad smashing down our door. And I remember opening the door and the drug squad guys just smashed the door down and just literally threw me across the room against the wall. And I was like, what the heck is going on here? And that was pretty scary as well, thinking back on it. Um, But at that time, I don't know, scary, but it was exciting. That happened quite a few times that that year, actually, we'd be in situations, we'd be in people's houses or they'd just be up to no good, really. Drug squad kicking the door down, you know, you'd end up in the cells for three or four nights till they, you know, find out who, who's, whose drugs it was and what. During that time, again, there was still heroin was still here and there, but it wasn't really a big issue for us at that stage in time. Okay, well, why don't we take a short break then? Kafiyas are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid, tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 on the AM Dial podcast, streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Uh, So, Dan, uh, before the break, we were talking about you leaving school around 16 and living in a flat with your brothers. So how did your life change when you reached the end of your teens? So we kind of moved away from that flat about a year later. So I'm hitting about 17, 18 year old. That starts to creep in more. Now, the reason I got into that lifestyle through the music and stuff, that started to become less and less because I was going to these parties and these raves and stuff. And when you have to kind of bring it back down into normality on a Monday, you need to take other stuff to kind of, get back in the zone and get back to work you know so that become more and more and the music and the going out became less and less so when those depressed depressant drugs or those downers started creeping in they start getting a grip with you in different ways so we were injecting heroin um, whatever way we can get the best fix at that time and I was quite early on a couple of months in, into it nothing majorly this weekend's you know, quite recreational. And then uh, one of my mates said, oh, if you go to the doctor's man and just tell them a lot of bollocks, man, you'll get methadone script, which is pretty much liquid heroin. I was like, all right, sweet. Straight to the doctors, gave them just a total bullshit story. <laughs> then they gave me methadone. So here's me with a box of methadone, a bottle of methadone every day. I'm like, awesome. So I'm, I'm using that and I'm still going to school and I'm still jumping about with the lads and just doing all this crazy stuff. And you know, after a couple of months, I'm realizing that, dang, if I don't get that methadone, I'm starting to feel pretty rough, you know, like, and so it just kind of started to 
get a, get to grip quite quickly. Yeah, it was probably about seven or eight years where that was kind of it. That was the real focus. It was no more of the amphetamines. Still smoke a lot of dope and more weed and cannabis and stuff, but then it was no no amphetamines, no going out. It was literally just get some downers, uh, heroin, um, all sorts of kind of um, analgesics or barbiturates, anything just to get, you know, pretty much out of your face. And um, that was a, a real journey for six or seven years um, on and off methadone programs and heroin trying to uh, start to get some normality back to my life. Were your brothers doing the same things? They were in this flat and then we kind of separated. So we were, we were doing separate things, but they were involved in the same stuff as well. And as I said, they paved the way. They knew a little bit more about it. They were the ones that probably helped score the drugs from time to time. You know, they, they were much more experienced. They were very protective of me as well, you know, being the younger one. We had a bit of a family name, you know, and uh, as I say, my brother was a bit of a tough nut and he was, he, he'd been in and out of trouble. He'd um, been um, caught for armed robbery. And um, so, yeah, they were highly influential um, in that lifestyle during, during those years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So did the drugs or alcohol cause you problems? Depends what you define as problems. I mean, if I'm sitting in a police cell, yeah, it was inconvenient that the police had arrested me for the next three or four nights in the cells. That was not something I wanted to happen. And I wasn't going to, at that stage, you know, you're like, you don't grass on anyone. So I'm not snitching anyone. We just keep your mouth shut. It's the way, the way of the street. Well, that's inconvenient. But I wasn't sitting there thinking, gee whiz, you know, I'm really glad I had that experience because that's going to change my life now. I'm going to turn my air on my ways and I'm going to completely go and, and, and change my life, right? It wasn't like that. That was part that, that was that's part of the wages of living that slightly criminal, you know, drug life. Part of it. It's not what you want, but it's, a, it's, the, it's the wages of it, really. So what about relationships? Difficult having relationships with people while you're under the influence? Well, it depends what you define relationships. Earlier on, my parents, I didn't want to borrow them. I just wanted to go out and do my own thing. So I probably shut down from them quite a bit. The relationships with my brothers and my, my peers were fine because we were all in the same boat. I honestly can't remember what the relationships with normal people were like. I, I, can't, I can't even think about how I communicated with normal people. It wasn't even on my radar uh, because I thought I was normal. I thought this is kind of part of life, you know. It wasn't until I hit those late teens, and as I said, when things were kind of getting to grips with methadone and stuff. It was really only when I woke up thinking, I'm, I'm in a lot of pain here, man. I, I, like physically, I need a hit. So it really wasn't until that point I thought, gee, this is kind of, this is not ideal, is it? <laughs> and uh, this, is, this has become a bit of a problem now. It's not just weekends and a Wednesday night or weekends and a Monday and a Wednesday. It's now every lemon day I'm getting up and that's the first thing I'm thinking of I don't get a hit when I'm going to be in trouble so we would be out you know stealing selling drugs whatever we could to to get cash but I'm very fortunate as well like through my whole teens there as I said I was a landscape gardener and I, I, I held that job down with the skin of my teeth and the point where my boss was a bit of a party animal drinker and it wasn't into drugs but he noticed and he's like, what's going on, mate? Like, and, I, and I came clean with him. I said, look, I've been dabbling with this and heroin and I'm on methadone scripts. And he was amazing. Like, I guess that's the one person in my life that was probably, other than the odd friend's parents that we would cross paths with now and again, he was probably quite influential in some ways on reflection because he let me, let me skip off from my work to go and score my methadone script and then I'd take it and I'd be back to work, you know? So I worked hard. Yeah, that started to become less appealing in Scotland when I was working in the winter landscaping for someone else, earning money. I was like, stuff this. So what happened, and this is where it, round about the time it got pear-shaped with the heroin, is that um, I said, ah, well, I'm going to go back to college. And I'm like, I'd left school with hardly nothing. Like, how I thought I would go back to college at that stage, I had no idea. But at that time, information technology was the, the talk of the 90s. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. That sounds like you're wearing a buck. I lasted three months, ended up leaving because I'd rushed up tens of thousands of dollars on credit cards and debt collectors were after me. 
I was like, I'm out of here. I did a runner. So at that point, I'm like trying to kind of get my head straight. Do you know, I'm trying to like, right, let's get let's get our head in the game and try and kind of get on top of this a little bit. Moved down, moved down to uh, England with because my brothers ended up moving down there, and uh, I went down there with my parents and stuff. And I thought I'll I'll try and start fresh, try and get away from it, get away from some of the mates, get away from that life, try and start you know a bit normality again. Yeah, got off everything, managed to reduce everything, get down to nothing. Went went down there, got another job, got a flat. Still not away from drugs in general, but it was just heroin and methadone. That was the issue. If I get away from that, my life will be fine. But I'm still taking anything else, <laughs> uh, you know, Valium, smoking pot, Ekis, anything else, speed, injecting speed. It doesn't matter. It's the heroin that had me physically dependent. So therefore, as long as I get off that, my life's fine. So back down there, but eventually my brothers were falling back into it. And there we go. We're back in the swing of it again. The three of us up to no good. And that lasted about a year. I was like, man, Dan, I can't be bothered with this again. Like, so I need to get, get off this again and worked hard to, to detox and ran away back up to Scotland <laughs> on my own this time. This was about 23, 24, looking for work. Still just dabbling here and there, but I wasn't on my methadone. I managed to get off it, just dabbling with different things, even now and again, heroin. But um, a lot of my friends that I was trying to get back into speaking to weren't using heroin and stuff. So that was the dirty drug. That was the dirty, filthy, you know, if you're on that, you're just a dirty junkie. That's what people would say. That's what people made you think. So I had friends that were still into drugs and still into all this crime, different things. But as long as you're not on that, Unfortunately, I got involved with a few other friends again that were still struggling with it and I got drawn back into it. So, Dan, how did you support yourself? Did you manage to get a job? I was doing a golf caddying with my mate and I loved that job, man. It was amazing. Love, love a bit of golf. It was just a great experience. But again, a couple of friends that I was involved with and I got back in with some of the old crew and um, I would literally be up at four in the morning, go and do two rounds of caddying and jump straight in the car, drive straight down to the drug dealers and blow the lot. And I'd be up the next morning and that was the cycle again. There's a lot of stuff, as I said, I'm not, not proud of. I'm not ashamed of getting involved in a lot of really heavy stuff. Um, so there's a lot of drug dealing involved just to survive. But it's part of my story now. I can look back on it and, and, and be positive in some ways of where I've come from. I'm sure there was a lot of heartache and a lot of pain that it caused people. And the good thing is it wasn't my parents. <laughs> they knew about my brothers a lot, but I had it from them a lot. I remember my dad saying, as long as you, you're not a burden on society, you know, and you're, in my books you're doing well. But I made sure that they knew I was always working. I always had a roof on my head and I never asked them for money. Lo and behold, I was, I was on and off methadone programs just destroying myself. And I just made sure they didn't know about it. The thing that people often talk about is the thing that caused them to reach out for help and think of the alternative to the way they're living. There's not one specific thing. I mean, there was something within my my mentality that knew this wasn't life. You know, like there was more to it. And 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 talk, thinking back, talking to my guidance counselor many years ago, I'm sure that he, he wanted more for me. Do you know what I mean? Than what I was at. Now I was working. I had a landscape apprenticeship under my belt. You know, on paper, I could show you that I was a functioning person in society, but I was just destroying myself, like physically, mentally, it's just spiritually, I was just being destroyed from the inside out. And I don't mind sharing briefly, but, um, you know, we talked about smart recovery has not necessarily um, got this aspect to it. But um, I remember it was, it was um, a big pivot uh, and, and a big aspect of my life was um, coming to an experience of, of faith, um, which a lot of people who go to 12-step or AA things they're, they're aware of. And that was a big turning point because I remember being in my flat in one of these um, towns and it was in between the caddy season. I had nothing. There was hardly anything in the flat. You know, you can imagine the kind of train spotting type like film, you know. I might have had a, a, a sofa and a bed and stuff, but I'd pawned everything. And we had um, no electricity, no food, nothing. I was duvet around in the middle of winter in Scotland with a candle, just struggling, like just looking for a, anything, a hit, anything to get you through the day. And anyway, my parents had started going to church many years before and I started talking to them and it was a big part. I ended up going into what's called an alpha course and different things. And 
that kind of gave me a, a, a an out really it was like an opportunity to start communicating at least with what you would consider normal people <laughs> and people that seemed to really care about us and they hardly knew about us you know they hardly didn't know who I was so that was a big part of it but the problem being yes I'd made that choice to kind of want a better life for myself but I was still living the same life so I was kind of stuck there uh, between two camps I had people in my life that really wanted me to wish me well and really wanted me to see me flourish and then I had all my friends that just stab you in the back and steal from you and and I thought man I've got to make a decision here so the decision I did make it was a very difficult decision was to walk away from everything I knew and I know a lot of listeners a lot of people don't have that opportunity but um, one of my dear friends now um, introduced me to a rehab in, in Edinburgh. Um, it was a Christian faith-based rehab. And, um, but I, I said to my friends, I'm done, I'm gone. I'll, I'll probably, well, actually, <laughs> looking, I'm back. I said I'll be back in three months. I'll get myself clean. I'll be back in three months and we can, I'll help you out. You know, I'll help sort you out. And so even back then, I thought there was maybe an aspect of me wanting to help people, you know, use the experiences I had to help people. But um it was a different plan, and um, I ended up walking away from it. I just abandoned my flat, abandoned my car, left the caddy, and just said farewell to my mates. So catch you later. And we went to Edinburgh, second biggest city in Scotland, completely stranger. And I went through this recovery program, um, which was a, it was a Christian faith-based program, and it had twelve-step stuff in it and that as well. But it also had um, a lot of psychology-type groups there as well. So. That was nine months I was in there. Um, after three days, I realised I'm never going back to that to that life, like or at least to, to where I used to live. You know, I really wanted this. I really wanted that new life for myself, and I, and I see it happening in other people that were around me. And it was really appealing, and I can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I'm still having to go through a lot of lot of lot of junk, you know, in my life. So, what was it in those first three days that caused you to want to change? That was for me where I, where I got a glimpse of a, of a life that I could have. And the people that are around me, I trusted. And for the first time in my life, most of the people around me, ah, don't get me wrong, some of the guys in the rehab, I wouldn't <laughs> trust them with anything. But at least the people I can see, or at least the people I allowed close to me, I could trust. You know, it was people through the church or, or, or connections and voluntary jobs that I was doing. And it was probably about, a couple of months into the into the rehab and the nine months of there, people would start saying, oh, you'd make a really good support worker or you'd make a really good counsellor or any alcohol drug counsellor. I thought, man, I don't know, maybe I could. Eh? And I was a little bit uneducated and, and I, I had a bit of experience to me and I thought maybe I could. And it was something that I thought, as I said to you, you know, I've maybe had thoughts of that in the past that if I can get away with this, that might be something useful to someone. You know, maybe it's not a complete waste of my life. So I guess when people started to see a vision in me and see the person I could be in the future, that was that was amazing because you know when you're in that life, you just have this identity that either society or yourself or whatever thrusts upon you to be no good, junky this, just whatever. Don't trust them, steal from you. They'll they'll stab you in the back and. I tried hard not to be that person. I tried to be a quite a nice chap in the midst of the chaos, you know, like it wasn't that real desire to want to hurt people or that. I was just trying to function, man. I was just trying to get through my own life. Yeah. What about the other people who are in there with you? Do they have the similar experiences? Some might, some might not. I mean, as you know, I've got a lot of people I work with nowadays and they have some horrific uh, experiences, horrific upbringings, you know, with parents and abuse and and violence in their lives at early stages so you know I, I really admire people that come through recovery when they're dealing with that really heavy stuff you know I mean yes I experienced a lot of heartache and a lot of darkness there but there's people that have been through serious trauma and you know I work with them today you know having to work through all that that, that garbage in their lives and and try and come out the other end and see themselves as valuable and, and worthy and but that was something I had to do for myself as well you know, I had to see that I was worthy and I did have something to offer and and um, I wasn't defined by the things I did all the time. And, and that's a real challenge because um, when I started learning more about addiction uh, and they talk about the kind of disease model of addiction where they think people that are 
I try to not use the word really for myself or the people I work with as addicts. You know, now I know why people do that. And I found that going through the 12 step process, you, you need to come to a place of admitting that you're powerless, right? O over your behaviors. So therefore it's an admittance to say, I have a problem and, and the word addict and that, that an addiction, it can be easy. And it, unfortunately it can label people I find quite significantly. Now I did not want that label for myself. I didn't really think of myself as an addict, even though I was picking up methadone scripts and on heroin for many years, I didn't think about it. It was just where I was and what I was doing. And it wasn't until I started getting into recovery or people around me were noticing and calling me this and calling me that. That's when I started taking these labels on and I fought really hard for myself to not take that label on because I did not want to be defined as something that's happened in my life and have to deal with and struggle with that the rest of my life. Now, this is where I challenge, and I'm sure a lot of listeners that have been through 12 Steps and stuff, uh, and I've, I, I took part in the 12-step programs. I said there was other group programs going on at the time that were similar to Smart Recovery, which we'll talk about. Because I had that faith aspect in my life that I appreciated some of that, but I also saw the benefit of really investing in other stuff as well, and not just that. But when I started seeing this new potential for my life, a bit of a vision for my life that actually I could be a counsellor or I could be someone that teaches youth not to make these crazy mistakes I did. And that's what I started doing. I started doing some voluntary work. I thought, well, let's do that. I did some voluntary work. I was volunteering for a youth organization. So I would go in and I would do drug educations in schools for younger kids or we'd design publications and little magazines for kids at school about drugs and stuff. And I thought, well, I've got a lot to give here. These people that I work with, they're like, you know, corporate or volunteers. And, but I, I actually know about this stuff. I've lived it. I mean, what a great value, but you can't learn that in a book. So I was like, maybe I've got something to give here, you know, and I've got this experience that I can share and I can put on paper. And so through that as well, there was that. There was a, 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 a healing in my own life through music and through poetry and different things that I started teaching myself. So that was a healing process and my faith and different things. But also people around me, but working through my thinking and my belief of who I was and my identity was huge absolutely huge and that's the thing that a lot of people struggle with I think through recovery and journey is finding out who you are because from an early an early time in my life I, I, I wasn't who I was thinking I was going to be growing up I was doing some crazy stuff I was involved with really scary things and scary situations scary people and I started taking on a persona or an identity that I was just left with that was quite destroying um and when I broke away from that, I said, you know what, I'm not, I'm going to use a different type of language and try and see myself as something different, you know, something better than that. Not be defined by my behavior, but defined who I am in my spirit, in my heart, in my mind, in my soul. And I knew I could do better. So I pushed on, I kept pushing forward with it, and I kept doing more voluntary work, doing little bits of studies, you know, just introduction to counseling and slowly built up over a couple of years to the point where um, I got an opportunity once I left rehab to, to volunteer for this organization. I thought, well, this is my chance. This is my chance to platform. This is a potential career and, and not use the last 10 years, flush it down the toilet and be a complete waste. You know, I'll show people, I'll show people it's possible. I can do it with, with the people around me, with the, with the programs that were around me, my faith and different things that were going on. Thank you. Uh, well, so we might take another short break there. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. 
published or not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing. A voice for them all on 3CR. Published or not, every Thursday, 11:30 till noon. When you get home, baby, write me a few yard lines. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Dan, uh, before the last break, we were discussing uh, the change in you after you were exposed to rehab and you realised that you could do better in your life. Uh, you decided to pursue work in the drug and alcohol field. So how did that progress? I was like a dog with a, a, a bone and I went after it and I, and I sought it out and it wasn't easy. Because there was times where I had slips. There was moments that I made mistakes and I, and I, and I reverted back to smoking a bit of pot or, or doing something that I thought, man, I've got to... And there was something about it, though. I was able to bounce back from it quickly because I was just so determined to see that new vision and that new identity that I, that I was seeing in other people. So, yeah. and um, But look, you know, you were talking about relationships earlier on, Bill. Um when it comes to intimate relationships, uh, barely had a girlfriend. Well, at least probably had a girlfriend every weekend. You know, it was kind of that deal. That was what you lived for, going out and getting getting fixed up with someone. Or, you know, it was a bad night if you went out in the town and you didn't get a girl for the night. You know, that was the mentality. So that just did not, not um, you know, proud of the way that that kind of unfolded. But what happened was when I went into rehab, man, you're smelling anyone with perfume, man, you're falling in love, man, you're just desperately wanting, you know, attention or a female companion, and now I want this new life for myself, well, I want a wife, man, I want something, I want a family eventually, you know, I'd be falling in love with anyone that walked past the perfume on, like, it'd just be this intense kind of desire to want to, you know, have a relationship, and, um, but I, but I made a commitment to myself to not go back to the way, the same thinking, through a lot of the programs we did, the psychology, this cognitive behavioral therapy. I wanted to respect myself. I wanted to respect my, my, my the people around me and, and, and females as well and, and girlfriends, potential wives. So uh, it might seem crazy, but I made a commitment to myself and I, and I never, I was not um, with another girl or even got involved with another girl for six years. Six years because I was just so devoted to, and it, look, I had friends and there was little peripherals, but I wanted to commit my newfound direction in life and what I was doing in my career um, and focus on that and, um, and on my faith and different things like that. But I, I just wanted to find someone that I can spend the rest of my life with. And I didn't want to waste time or heartache and just jump from relationship to relationship. Does that make sense? Because I couldn't trust myself in the previous relationships or... Um, you know, I didn't want people judging me and finding out about my past, you know, and, and having to drudge that stuff up. But it was part of my testimony and I'd be sharing that with anyone who wanted to hear it. I would be public speaking and sharing the, the, the testimony of change there as well. Um, but yeah, eventually found um, a, a, a girl who was really, um, really accepting of, of my story. And um, we, we got engaged after 59 days. So getting to know someone <laughs> 59 days I just knew something just just snapped there it was like okay and um yeah we got we got married and uh she's a Kiwi as I say I'm calling you uh, today from New Zealand so we're over here with her family um she was a Kiwi and uh always wanted to come back to New Zealand um, but at that stage I wasn't quite where I was thought I would be in my career and, and working I was working in the drug rehab I was doing quite well. It was about six years I was working there, but I hadn't had any qualifications to note. So I, I made a commitment to, to study and work at the same time. And I did a bachelor's degree in, in addiction studies uh, through Leeds University. So I was commuting down to England every few weeks and working uh, full time in the rehab and doing voluntary work and different things and music and all sorts. So it was a busy time. Um, and honestly, as I said, <laughs> left school with nothing. And uh, I did my first assignment and I failed it and I, I was like I can't do this man there's no way I can do this um, thankfully my wife was a bit more academic and she helped me 
and it was a hard three years, really hard three years. She was really homesick. She was really unwell. She's got Indian descent, Indian Kiwi descent, uh, having no weather in Scotland. <laughs> uh, it's quite ironic. There's a newspaper in Scotland called The Sun because we don't see it normally. <laughs> um, so she was quite unwell uh, and quite depressed. She was really quite depressed in her life. And, and I was starting to get quite depressed because someone so close to me was really not enjoying being in my homeland. And But I had to get my studies done. So we really pushed through a really difficult five years of our first five years of marriage, knowing that we would probably leave. Um, tell you what, look, if it's an encouragement to anyone listening, if you don't think you can do academic, mate, if you just keep pushing through, you, you'll do it. Your brain, your brain is an amazing thing. Like from what would considered to be methadone mush, you know, to, to start to find those synapses in your brain start to connect in different ways. And I failed my first course. And at the end of three years, uh, my, my dissertation, the full, big, massive dissertation thesis that I did, I got a grade one. It was just incredible what you can apply yourself to and keep pushing forward, right? Um, and, and if you're surrounding yourself with supportive people, if you're surrounding yourself and investing in really positive stuff, you know, really helpful things. And um, it, it's really in, in, intriguing. Um, and I can go into, you know, where I am now because that's part of the story. So how did you come in contact with Smart Recovery? So we were going to go back to New Zealand. And about two weeks before we did book the flights and my wife got an opportunity in Australia and we just got, ah, oh, let's stuff it, man. Let's just go to Australia for a year. So randomly we came to Australia and moved to Brisbane and um, I think we just started really enjoy it. Uh, tropical weather in Brisbane and the beaches of the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast. And it was just, ah, oh, this is quite cool. So let's not be hasty. Anyway, I, I was working. Um, I got a support worker's job. As I said, I was qualified now. I was and an honours degree and a diploma in counselling at that point. But yeah, I got a job um, with the Benevolent Society, just doing mental health stuff with, with young folks. It wasn't drug and alcohol, which I wanted to get back into all the time. It was just little bits and bobs. They were advertising in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And I was like, what chances, you know, where I've come from to get a job like that? And I applied for it. And thankfully, Everything just fell into place. They were wanting someone with a peer experience. They were wanting someone up in Brisbane or away from Sydney. They wanted someone with alcohol, drug qualifications. They want everything just seemed to fit. And it was just like, wow, this is amazing. So uh, I was really, really blessed to have an opportunity to work with Smart. And that's been uh, five years now I've been with them. So big, huge learning curve for myself as well. And reflecting on my own life and thinking about a the philosophy that smart recovery brings because it's probably similar but sometimes very different to 12 steps the stuff that I've been doing in the rehab um, as I said I did some CBT and some psychology stuff so that's what I was thinking oh that's like that stuff that's like that class we did on a on a Monday and Tuesday not the Thursday Friday 12 step stuff so I was seeing how actually both of them were hugely beneficial to me in my life even though I wasn't fully um, aware of it at that time and yeah the 12 step stuff and my faith and all that was fine and I know a lot of people go to 12 step stuff that don't have you know that belief in the same way and there are people that go to 12 step they don't they hate it <laughs> do you know they don't want to go there and do you know what that's okay you you choose what you want and that's what I've come to realize more working for smart recovery so can you tell us a bit more about the approach of smart recovery and I guess how it differs from the 12-step the approach? Well, look, as I say, there's some similarities and there's some differences. Smart recovery um, was actually born out of America in the mid-90s. Now, they wanted to have a, a, another option for 12-step because 12-step and, and A, Alcohol Anonymous has been around for many, many years, like 70 years or so. So it's really established and it's changed a lot of people's lives. But in America, they wanted an alternative to this that, that was more psychology-based, that looked at REBT, Rational Emotive Behavioural Therapy, then what was turned into be Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Um, smart Recovery is founded on those evidence-based psychology approaches. So Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, uh, Mindfulness and, and Motivational Interviewing, which is um, an approach to help people move from pre-contemplative or stuck feeling stuck to, to making changes, making small steps towards change. So what's similar is that Smart Recovery 
uses a, a weekly meeting approach and it's a peer approach because when you learn from people that have gone through it and as I said I used that to my benefit in my career uh, there's real merit to hearing from people going through the same stuff so the mutual aid support is is, is, is paramount but as I said Swan Recovery uses a, a very practical approach around understanding um, unhelpful thinking and looking at the psychology of addiction and what ways you can take control again over that. So it's self-management, stands for self-management and recovery training. So it's about retraining your, your brain in some ways to understand how you've psychologically, emotionally, physically, um, you've formed these unhelpful cycles and how these conditioned behaviors or these experiences that you've had, whether it can be trauma or whether it can be just peer pressure or whatever it is, gets to the point of people that they become um, uncontrollable over certain behaviors. Another difference in smart recovery is it's any behavior, because when you actually look at the psychology of addiction, it actually is the same for, for most, if not all behaviors. So again, a 12 step may be Alcoholics Anonymous or Gambling Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous. Do you know there's maybe a specific cohort that they're tailoring to and that you probably have to have that as a primary concern. Smart recovery weekly based meetings that are run by a trained facilitator. So the facilitators have to do a two day course and that we train. And as I said, I'm one of the trainers now. So we train these facilitators to use these CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing techniques to try and um, create a really supportive environment. So these participants can make the change for themselves that they can try and step away from the behavior and their experiences of the past to start making better choices and better changes now. Don't get me wrong, people need therapy. They need trauma counseling. They might need to work through a lot of stuff, but you don't necessarily get that in SMART, but it helps you as a platform to start making better decisions, to seek that support. So it might be 12-step, it might be something else. It might be a counselor. So we have um, people that come through 12-steps and and, and find huge benefit in smart recovery and a really practical way of understanding the psychology of addiction. We have people come to smart that, that have been not interested in 12-step and that's okay. We're, we're welcoming to anybody to come into that space and any behavior and whatever you find helpful, whatever you find to self-manage and to put change and to find the direction you want in your life. You know, you're the one that's in control. You're the expert. You can get support from your peers as well you've got to take accountability now and, and that's why I think in some aspects that as I said that disease model of addiction because some people can feel like oh I, I'm, I'm going to be this for the rest of my life and and I don't know for you but for me I was making sure that wasn't the case I was going to put the work into the point where that behavior now became atypical to me that person back then even though I have those memories and those experiences is not the person I am today now, that's what I love about SMART, is you have an opportunity to reconfigure your brain and your thinking and your life to the point where you can break away from this. I really fully believe if you apply the right principles in your life, whether it's 12-step, whether it's this, or whether I think it needs to be an accumulation of all of them or of different things, you can find a point in time. I don't know if that's six months to six years. I don't know. It's your self-managed journey. And it wasn't a conscious thing that I woke up and say, okay, today I'm going to live a free life. I just stopped thinking about me as that person. And I started thinking about the positive things and the things I was doing. And I often use this analogy. If you concentrate on something or try and concentrate on not doing something, you end up concentrating on that thing. <laughs> it's like, Bill, me saying to you, Bill, I don't want you thinking about a pink elephant. What are you thinking about, Bill? You end up concentrating on that. And I think for me, I had to come through that point where I needed to stop thinking about my recovery and my addiction. And I needed to shift my thinking through the cognitive behavioral process to what my life is wanting to be like. And what do I need to do to make that happen? Now, early stages of people's recovery, you know, you might be really, you know, struggling, really rock bottom on the streets, you know, fighting with your family, split up, divorce, and just all these horrific things with trauma and stuff what a lot of people struggle with thinking, well, I need to be abstinent for the rest of my life. Well, that's up to you. Yes, yeah, some people really do need to be abstinent for the rest of their life. But some people can 
get control over certain things and, and manage certain ways to find some stability that they're happy with. Now, I can't tell someone what they need to live their life. If you need to live an abstinent life, you choose that, then that's fantastic. We'll be very supportive of that. But Bill, if you come into the smart meeting and say, I just want to get control over my alcohol back to the way it was and just be a social, well, that's something you need to choose. Uh, and we'll look at the ways and the tools and the different things of how you want your life to be. So whether it's abstinent or whether it's moderation or whether it's control, we really work from a harm minimization perspective. We want to reduce the harm that people are in. But if you're choosing to live a certain life, that's up to you. Yeah. So well, on that point then, if, if people are having, you know, significant issues with drugs or alcohol, um, you know, doing things like drinking blackout and stuff like that, um, is there an option for them to drink normally if, you know, each time they pick up a drink, they drink to, to blackout? Is that, do people, you know, can smart recovery help people to do that? Or is it a realisation that I can't drink anymore because I can't do it? Look, I think there will be people that, that need to realise they can't drink again, and that's something that maybe people need to live with. Like, it's like me saying, well, I can't dabble with heroin. Well, I've chosen to walk away from that for the rest of my life. Yeah, I might be able to take heroin a couple of times and be okay, but why would I want to? I'm trying to move away from that lifestyle, that thinking, and live a different life. Now, it's, this is the challenge where people come in and have to think about this a bit differently than, than it being as clean-cut as what you said, Bill. The people that come into smart recovery, they could be drinking, they could be using drugs, they could be struggling with pornography, or they could have an eating disorder where they're just overeating or there's something in their life. Now, what I've found through my 18 years professionally in this field, and also 10 years plus vocational hands-on training, is that when you break this down, it's all about just getting control over human behavior and finding values in your life that you want to live by again so for some people that come into smart they might want to just avoid getting hangovers or falling into trouble with the police but still be living life like some of the other people out there where you know and that's a choice they have to make for themselves i can't tell people what they should and shouldn't do in their life but we'll create a space to to, to help people make those choices now if people came into smart recovery and we said, well, it's just abstinence, well, then you've got people that are sex addictions that they're dealing with. Well, so they, they need to be celibate for the rest of their life. Or they've got people that come in with prescription abuse, but they need to take the medication. They need to continue taking that, but they need to get control over the maladaptive, unhelpful side of it. You might have some coming in with an eating disorder. You're going to be abstinent from food. It's impossible. So we're trying to change the perspective of not thinking just about abstinence or not. Now, as I said, some people do choose that and we are supportive of that and that's important for them and we want to support that. That's why people come through the door of 12 step have chosen that and we're supportive of that. We're supportive of them going to 12 step because they get something different from that. And I think it's fabulous. That I've experienced that myself. But this becomes really practical about changing your thinking. As I said, it may be abstinence and that's fine. Do you know abstinence is a part of harm reduction? Yeah, it's the ultimate, yeah. it's the ultimate harm reduction. But there's, a <laughs> yeah. there's a spectrum there that, 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 that we're trying to broaden and we're trying to destigmatize people's thinking about what recovery and what, what a journey of, of life is. Um, and I've seen it happen in my meetings. It's been amazing. I had a meeting with an 18-year-old methamphetamine user on the street up to all sorts of no good. And across the table as a director of a company abusing his prescription medication because he's stressed out and he's got all the stress in his life. And I've witnessed these people communicate and support each other in a way that I would never, ever see in, in some other ways. And it was just amazing to watch because they were actually getting really practical. And that's what SMART does. It focuses on not forever. If you want to be absent for the next seven days, then that's what we focus on. But if you can't, because you've always failed or you've always never been able to stick to abstinence and that seems too unattainable for you and that's a challenge people have they think well I've got to be abstinent I've got to be married I've got to have a job I've got to have a mortgage and that's too much for me and I can't handle it and I'm on the street and it just it falls down before they've even started this is what we do at SMART 
Yeah. So um, I understand you also have family and friends. So it's a similar program, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's say practical, the next seven days and similar with family and friends, which I mentioned. And I'll just go back just a couple of seconds and we'll uh, answer that question with family and friends. Smart recovery, it's about what, what in the next seven days do you want to achieve? And here are the tools. How are you going to put it into place? And then you come back after the seven days and you keep moving forward and trying to adapt and make changes to the way you want. So that's what's supportive for these people that are going through addictive behaviours. And a slow progression there, it could be a year, two years, whatever it takes, six months, they'll see, they'll see change happening in their life. So it's, it's really a privilege to be part of that. And um, we, we see a lot of um, change happening in people's lives. And uh, as you've said, the Family and Friends programme, we've got other things that are happening with SMART. That Family and Friends programme is um, slightly different in the sense of it's a programme designed for people that have a loved one or a family member going through addiction. So rather than the, the individual coming to these programmes, which they do weekly, it's the family member can go to a course, um, normally a six or an eight week course. We have weekly meetings um, across Australia for both demographics as well. But this is um, family members going to talk with other family members and a trained facilitator to work through their own stuff. It's kind of like, well, put your own oxygen mask on before helping someone else. If you can't function yourself, you're never going to help Tommy or whoever it is that's going through this stuff um, through addiction. So it helps prepare family members and loved ones to manage their own lifestyle and their own choices and make better choices to create a better environment for someone else to then make their choices. So, uh, and support people through that process if you've got a father or a son or someone that's struggling with that. Could work very well together. You know, I've seen family members that might go to different meetings. We'd probably encourage them to go to different meetings because you don't yeah. want conflict. But uh, I've seen people go through family and friends while they're supporting their son and they've gone through that journey together. It's been incredible to watch. Yeah, you know, I, I guess the, the main thing there is about understanding your own behaviour as it affects the person who, who has a substance or other issue, that yep. your behaviour has a significant influence on them and that Absolutely. you can't control them. Yeah. Absolutely. So. But, but, Bill, this is the thing. It's the same stuff that we're talking about with these family members than we're talking about the participants because when you break it down, it doesn't matter if it's alcohol or drugs or giving in or kicking your son out of your house or giving them money, whatever it is. Uh, we're all dealing with normal things in our life. Now, Bill, I'm sure you've got things in your life that's not going exactly the way you want. I'm sure there are decisions that you make that you reflect back on and think that was stupid. Or there is thinking, there is anxiety, there is tension, there are stresses, there are challenges, there are bereavements, there are normal things in life going on for us. And, and this is why I think smart recovery really sits in a space that no matter what, whether you're going through the addiction yourself or whether you are the average Joe on the street, this is basic understanding of behaviour, of the psychology of behaviour in our brain and improving our life. And I have saw and trained many hundreds of facilitators that have not had addiction experience that have actually used the smart recovery principles to change their own lives. And I, and, I, and I do it in this training and I, and I ask them to bring a, a behavior that you're wanting to improve and it would just be your health goals or, or not procrastinating or dealing with stress differently or dealing with your child's behaviors that you're struggling with, your parenting, all this basic stuff. When you look at the cognitive behavioral processes, the um, understanding of psychology of it can help anyone in life. And whether you find it in that, whether you find it in 12 steps, whether you find it in yoga or doing whatever it is you do, we want to be supportive and create a space so people can choose that for themselves and start seeing progress and change in their lives. Yeah. So what does it cost? Um, it's free to participants to attend. As I said, we've, we had 350 meetings running weekly and a lot of those meetings are either volunteers that run it or organisations. Um, so it's Smart Recovery is embedded in their service delivery. So um, part of my job in Australia, I was traveling all around Australia training services to run this as a model, or we would train volunteers to want to give back to the community or also support peers who have come through the program to then subsidize a scholarship to, for them to do the training. And then, so if you wanted to 
attend SMART. Um, there are slightly reduced numbers face-to-face, -face, as we know, for good reasons in the last 18 months of COVID. Um, a lot of the services have closed the door, but we've been very fortunate to have um, online training and online meetings running. So if you wanted to attend Smart Recovery anywhere in Australia, you literally just need a phone number or, or an internet connection, and you can engage in one of the 70 online meetings that we have running um, all over anywhere from Australia. Now, if you were interested in that or face-to-face, -face, as I said, it's a bit more limited in your own area, but you can check the website out for that at Smart Recovery Australia. If you were interested, again, now a lot of peers come through the programme and want to give back and go through a similar journey that I went through. You know, you want to use the experience and the, the knowledge and the know-how to, to help other people. Um, we can also train you, whether that's a peer, a volunteer or services, the two-day facilitator training. Um, as you can check on the website, there's... Um, different cost to that, whether it's online or face-to-face. -face. Okay, well, I think that's um, I think that's a pretty good rundown, Dan. If anybody would like to find out more about Smart Recovery Australia, uh, you can go to their website, which is smartrecoveryaustralia.com.au uh, for more details of local meetings and contact information. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Dan for sharing his Smart Recovery Australia experience with us. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much, Bill. I'm, I'm always uh, open to sharing experiences and, and just uh, sharing with people that have uh, maybe not, not know about these services that can be really valuable for people. Yeah, thanks.